in the book of Matthew. <clears throat> We're in the Sermon on the Mount. And this is when we get into the main meat of Jesus' teaching. And it's where we start to get into the complexities of Jesus' teaching. All right? And I'm going to do my best to help you navigate through that and kind of understand some of the issues but not get bogged down. That's my goal, which is hard to do. All right? But we're going to do it together. All right? Um, keep our focus on the main thing. And so we're in chapter 5. We're going to do verses 13 through 26. We finished the Beatitudes last week, which are the blessed are those scriptures, and talked all about those. And all of that works well as a kind of an introduction to the rest of the content. Okay, so if you missed that, go back and, and listen to those messages. Um, let's read Matthew 5, 13 through 16. He says, You are the salt of the earth. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Okay, so Jesus gives us two, really three metaphors, depending on how you look at it, both illustrating the same idea, okay? Which is disciples of Jesus are meant to live in the world in such a way as to keep it from spiritual decay. That's the salt, okay? Salt was used primarily to preserve meat, to keep it, to slow the decay of meat. You can still do that now. It's why we like our ham really salty. Okay, it goes back to salting a ham, which keeps it from rotting as fast, right? It was also used sometimes as flavoring, okay, but the main use of that was you, you keep your meat from rotting. And so the Christian, the disciple, the follower of Jesus is supposed to live in a way that according to God's law, right, that acts as a preservative in the world. It slows the spiritual decay of the world, okay? And then he also uses this metaphor of light. Now, that one's pretty easy for us to understand. You ever been in a super dark room and you turn on the smallest light, what happens to the room? The room brightens. Darkness is not a thing. It's a lack of a thing, right? That's how it works. And he says, that's the church. And he gives you this, this picture of a city on a hill, right, that's lit up. And you remember, this is a time when there were no, like, cities with lights and street lights it was when it was nighttime the only light you had was either the stars and the moon or a candlelight it's very dark so a city on a hill lit up would have been visible all around for miles and miles and miles he says this is the church this is what my disciples should be jesus will not he mentions these good deeds. He, we do this by doing good works. And we don't hear this a lot. We don't, feel, we don't like feeling pressure to do good things. Right? The pushback is, well, man, I believe in grace. Well, so does Jesus. He kind of invented it. Right? But here he is talking about doing the thing that makes you salt. The thing that makes you light is your good works. This is what disciples of Jesus are supposed to do. We should be clear, by the way, that the phrase city on a hill means the church. That phrase has been stolen by politicians, 
by cult leaders, by all sorts of people throughout history. It means the church. The global church is the city on a hill, the hope of the world. We sang it this morning in that song about the kingdom of God. There has never been a time when we needed that more than this moment in history. You need to understand this. The hope of the world is the church. It's not some other thing. Despite the rumors you've heard, to the contrary. What we need is more of this. What we need is more of that. We need less of those people and more of these people. We need more of this thing and less of this thing. We need more education. We need more money, less money, more money in the right hands, the right party in power, the, right, the wrong party not in power. It all depends on all these ideas and all these thoughts and all these opinions about what the hope of the world is. By the way, the hope of the world is not America. It's not any other nation. The hope of the world in every nation, in every place in the world, is the church. The church is the city on a hill. You're kind of a big deal. I mean, it's kind of a lot of pressure, too. But <laughs> I mean, I don't know if you've looked around lately, but <laughs> this is the hope of the world? Yeah, God is amazing in that he doesn't require us to be great in order to make us great because it's him in us he's great so what good deeds is jesus talking about exactly because he gets very specific in the coming chapters painfully specific because right now i think we're all like well it's kind of convicting but yeah you know, it's very general good deeds do good deeds okay i'll just be a good person nah he's gonna get specific he will not let us think of being his disciple as only a matter of the inner person. It is a matter of the inner person, but it is also a matter of your external acts, what you do and how you treat each other and how you respond to persecution and suffering is also a part of being a Christian. Being a Christian is not a personal, private belief that you just keep to yourself. It must be, it must be demonstrated in how you live and how you respond to suffering. All right, so now we're going to get specific. Matthew 5, 17 through 20. He says, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. The iota is the smallest letter in the Greek alphabet, and the dot is like the little, a little curve on the end of a letter. It's the smallest part of the smallest letter, okay? None of it will pass away. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, isn't that interesting? Because Jesus spends a lot of time rebuking the Pharisees. But the Pharisees in that time, in that place, were the example of a truly holy, righteous, good living person. They were extreme in that way. And he says, you have to be more holy than those guys. 
to enter into heaven. In fact, later in this chapter, he actually says, be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. <sighs> Great. Hope of the world indeed, right? I told you he's going to get specific. So on the surface, this text is pretty straightforward. But underneath that, when you start asking obvious questions, things get difficult. This is maybe, in that sense, one of the hardest verses in Scripture and one of the most argued about. Some questions. Maybe I'll answer these. Maybe I won't. Here's some questions. What does Jesus mean by the law and the prophets? Some parts of the law were done away with by the apostles in the New Testament. For example, dietary laws, circumcision, sacrifices, temple worship were also stopped after the resurrection. So when Jesus says not any of this will pass away, what exactly does it mean? What exactly is our current relationship to the Old Testament law? And that's the one that's always debated. Is does the Old Testament law hold any kind of sway over us now, or is it all just past? Should we, in fact, unhitch ourselves from the Old Testament, as one popular teacher likes to teach? Because if it, none of it holds any sway over us, why read it? Why care? So I debated myself a lot over whether or not to just nerd out on this this week or not. I decided not to, because <laughs> I think as important as those questions are, it actually takes us away from the point that Jesus is trying to make, and the reason that Matthew actually included it here was not to bring up a debate about the Old Testament law so much as to show us what Jesus is doing and what he's teaching about here. So one of the key words here is the word fulfill in verse 17. What did it mean for Jesus to fulfill the Old Testament? So when he says the law and the prophets, we can just think of that in uh, Gentile terms, the Old Testament. Okay, it's the, the, the original law of the Old Testament. That's the Hebrew scriptures that they had at the time when Jesus said this. I think Jesus is thinking of the entire Old Testament as one big prophecy pointing forward to his eventual coming. Okay, All of the Old Testament taken together points to the need for a Messiah. And Jesus is the fulfillment of that prophetic sign, okay? Let me give you a good quote from D.A. Carson, who wrote this great uh, tiny little book on the Summer on the Mount. He says, not only do the prophets prophesy, but the law prophesies. The entire Old Testament has a prophetic function, and Jesus came to fulfill the Old Testament. Jesus came not to abolish the Old Testament, but to fulfill it. Fulfill it in the sense that he himself was the object to, to which it pointed. In other words, the Old Testament is a question, and Jesus is the answer. And the question is, how in the world are we lot going to be righteous? Because we, he gave us simple rules. He started with ten rules. And we can't do them. And we have tried really hard. We've made a valiant effort. Over and over and over again we try, and then we walk away from him like, like he was just a memory. And then he sends his prophets, and what do they do? They say, hey, remember God, remember the law, do what he says. He's kind of serious about it. He's going he's gonna to send an army to wipe you out. He's going to send a plague to remind you. He's going to judge you if you don't come back. And they go, ah, kill the prophet. Send him out. Stone him. Get rid of him. We don't want to listen to that guy. He's such a downer. And then what does God do? He comes in and he judges them. 
He says, hey, I was serious. You see, I sent my prophet. You didn't listen to him. Now you're going to have to listen to me or the Assyrians or the Babylonians or the Philistines. And the big question of the entire thing is, how is it that we're going to be righteous? How can we be in fellowship with God if we can't even get this right? And Jesus is the answer to that question, which is, you can't, but I can. This is what Jesus is saying. It's what he's going to teach. But that does not mean he doesn't have expectations of us. He expects us to act like him. So what Jesus is not saying is that the Father's expectations of holiness no longer hold sway over us. These requirements are being fulfilled in us as we are in Christ. So you are actually being made holy. You are being made to be a keeper of the law by the Spirit of Christ. So we don't throw out the law and the requirements of God's holiness. We actually go, wait a minute, Jesus is actually going to make me into that for me. That's amazing. You will be perfect. Consider that. I don't know what a perfect Ben Cotton quite looks like, but he's coming. He's on the way, right? Same for you. I don't know what a perfect Michael Cotton looks like, but it's got to be real different, right? (laughs) This probably looks something like Gloria Cotton. I don't know. Y'all can't believe I'm saying that. All right. He's smiling, I promise. He's smiling. See, this is exactly the point Jesus is going to make over the next several chapters. Do good because you are salty, preservative, and the city on the hill. Do good. That's what disciples of Jesus do. It's how we act. It's what the kingdom of God is like. And two, do good because the Father is perfect and he expects you to. It's astounding to me that many take these verses as a license to sin however they please because they fail to read the rest of the Sermon on the Mount. Well, it doesn't matter what I do, Jesus, there's grace, man. Who are you to tell me what to do? Don't be legalistic. If you, were to, if you didn't realize Jesus was going to teach what he's about to teach, you would. and I was teaching it, and I used no verses, you go, man, you're being awfully legalistic. You just told the church to be perfect. All right, so let's get even more specific. Verses 21 and 22. It says, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. Note that he says, you have heard that it was said. He's going to use that phrase multiple times. What that means is, doesn't mean, he's not saying the Old Testament teaches. He says, you think the Old Testament teaches. And so at points, he's going to correct their understanding. And at points, he's not. So they were right, by the way, that murder is a sin. I don't know if you knew that. I'm assuming everyone understands. Murder is a sin. Thou shalt not kill. But they had not understood the sin from which murder comes. They were not concerned with the sin that creates murder, the root of it. Like people don't just murder one day just because it seemed right. They started somewhere else. 
They had self-righteously thought of themselves as good people simply because they had not committed murder. Jesus implies that they are no more moral than a murderer if they harbor anger and bitterness in their heart towards another or say an angry word to assassinate their character. You fool. He's just sort of the modern-day equivalent would be like you empty-headed blockhead, right? You're empty-headed. You're a fool. You're, you're, I'm, I don't want to come up with more alternatives. There's little kids here, and I'll get in trouble, all right? He makes this clear in verses 23 to 26. Let's read those. He says, so if you are, he gives examples, right? Hypothetical examples. So if you're offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother, then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you're going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you be put in prison. Truly I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. So notice in the first example, you're commanded to leave worship, which is probably the most important kind of holy, sanctified, spiritual act a Jew would do at the time, which is to go to the temple to offer a sacrifice for their sin. Just leave it there, not if you are angry at your brother, but if you just happen to know that your brother has a problem with you. Now, this eliminates the old thing of, well, if they got a problem with me, they can come talk to me about it. Not so. Because that is exactly the scenario Jesus paints here. It would be worth it to skip worship on the Lord's day to go reconcile with somebody that you suspect has a problem with you and is offended by you. In fact, I would say if you're sitting here and you know and somebody just popped in your head, you should not be here. Get that? What's Jesus doing? He is adjusting our sensitivity to what's a bad sin and what's not such a bad sin. What we tolerate and are unconvicted by and unconcerned by with what we think is the really important stuff that I get right. This self-righteousness that we carry and harbor because there are certain things that we don't do. There are certain places we don't go, certain words we don't use, certain movies we don't watch. We go to the right church with the right people, with the right beliefs. Therefore, I'm okay. Meanwhile, you harbor anger and bitterness towards your brother or sister. Or you tolerate broken relationships in your life because you just think, well, it's their responsibility to come to me. Or you don't mind slandering someone else's character and using words like, that person is such an idiot. And you're unconcerned about that. The second example he uses is legal court as a metaphor, saying it's better to reconcile yourself than to have a judge do it for you. Do it yourself. What are you waiting for a judge to do it? Be a grown-up and reconcile, right? Jesus is confronting them and us. He's pointing out that we believe we are morally superior to those who have committed murder or similar. But haven't you ever wished someone dead, like, in your heart? Haven't you ever nursed an angry grudge in your heart against someone? Haven't you ever used your tongue to say an angry word 
or assassinate someone's character from a distance. You may have never committed murder, but you have tasted of the same tree that murder comes from. So the big idea. Followers of Jesus consider anger in their hearts to be as serious as murder. Hopefully you consider murder to be pretty serious. All this other stuff underneath it that we tolerate, a disciple of Jesus considers that to be just as serious. They consider one broken relationship with a brother or sister as equally important as worship itself. Leave your worship at the altar and go reconcile, he says. They don't rely on judges, mediators, or authority figures to settle their disputes for them. Instead, they reconcile quietly on their own if it is at all possible. The kingdom of God is a kingdom where there is no anger between friends. I love the way Jesus puts this stuff, and he says over and over and over again. He doesn't say you ought to or you should. He just simply says this is how the kingdom of God is. This is what a disciple is. He is saying this is what you are, whether you like it or not. We don't do broken relationships here. We don't do anger and bitterness in the kingdom of God. We just don't do it. That's his attitude. By the way, I should say reconciliation is a different thing. It requires four things. I did a podcast on this. I'm not going to belabor the point. Repentance, forgiveness, and justice. Repentance by the sinner, forgiveness by the victim, and the sinner must stop hurting, okay? And make it right if it's at all possible. That's reconciliation. Your job is not to make your relation, someone else forgive you. Your job is to repent when you need to repent. Your job is to forgive even if they don't repent. You must repent even if the victim won't forgive. You must forgive even if the offender doesn't repent or stop hurting you. you got to do that. That's what the Bible teaches. All right. So the big question may have already occurred to you. What about righteous anger? Because Jesus got mad. Like he made a whip. It was premeditated premeditated anger. He went to the temple, he kicked over tables, made a scene. People would have videotaped it and put it on Twitter. This crazy rabbi is kicking over tables and yelling and whipping people. Anger and violence. So how do you square that with this? Carson has a great commentary on this. I'm going to read a quote from his and then we'll close. It says, Indeed, there is a place for burning with anger at sin and injustice. Our problem is that we burn with indignation and anger, not at sin and at justice, but at offense to ourselves. In none of the cases in which Jesus became angry was his personal ego wrapped up in the issue. More telling yet, when he was unjustly arrested, unfairly tried, illegally beaten, contemptuously spit upon, crucified, mocked, when in fact he had every reason for his ego to be involved, then, as Peter says, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. From his parched lips came forth rather those gracious words, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. That's righteous anger. Or the difference between righteous anger and your anger. The truth is that we are usually slow to get angry over sin and injustice. And we are lightning quick at getting angry because we are personally affronted. 
And often what we think, when we think we're angry over sin and injustice, we're really just angry because someone else is opposing us or appears to threaten our place in the world, and we disguise it as righteous anger. Righteous anger is actually very difficult to pull off. It's why you have, I don't, I don't know if there's maybe any examples other than Jesus in the Bible of actual righteous anger. So whatever, if you keep labeling, well, I'm angry because, I'm, because this is about the truth, it's probably not. It's probably about your ego, your fear of losing your place or your, your position of power and safety and comfort. It's probably because you're angry because your group is not being appreciated properly. It's probably because you have convinced yourself that you're righteous in your anger, but you're actually not. I'm not going to say absolutely never. Righteous anger is possible, <laughs> but it is rare. It's exceedingly rare, okay? As I thought about these verses, I began to think about how there's an ep epidemic of rage in our world. It's not just our nation. It's all over the world. We are surrounded by rage. People don't just say what they think anymore. They say it with rage, with anger. That rage often pretends to be righteous anger when in fact it isn't. It parades around in a costume that makes it appear righteous, but it always eventually shows itself as destructive, bitter, self-centered, and self-righteous. It does not point to God as a holy and just God, but instead it points back at the angry person as being holy and righteous. What is, does this right anger inspire you to be in awe of the holiness of God? Or does it inspire you to be in awe of the holiness of the person who is angry? And what is the fruit of that anger? Is it destructive? Is it self-righteous? Anger is intoxicating. I have struggled with anger in my own life. It feels great. Let's be honest. Losing your temple, temper feels powerful and it's releasing and it feels good. It gives you goosebumps. Especially when you can accompany that anger, anger with self-righteousness. Now, I'm angry. That feels great. But I'm also full of my own righteousness. That feels great, too. But it has no place in the kingdom of God whatsoever. You need to recognize how intoxicating and how tempting it is to mix your the truth that you know about God to mix that with a self-righteous anger. This ultimately is, becomes just about you and about you being right. Husbands, have you ever won an argument with your wife and then realized you didn't really win much? Like you won, but you really lost? You might have won the argument, but you lost something in your relationship? And it wasn't righteous anger destructive this is the place I think where we as a church need to repent the body of Christ needs to repent we need to take the way of Jesus which is to not get our ego involved to trust him that he's in control he's sovereign and I'm just following him doing what he says right 
And, and, and if that means I have to suffer and be mocked and persecuted like him, then that's what it means. Praise God. Amen. All right, why don't we stand up and pray? I'm going to pray for you. Lord Jesus, we just thank you for being so specific, <laughs> for giving us a clear picture of what it means to follow you, what it means to be in the kingdom, what your kingdom is like, what you are turning us into, what you're creating in your people. God, even just this first one about anger is so convicting to me. I feel confronted by you in these verses. So God, I repent, and God, I pray that you lead all of us into repentance. God, that we would not be enticed into trying to use anger or rage to further even a just cause. But God, you would make us people of peace, make us peacemakers. God, I pray that you would deal with our fear, you would deal with our insecurity. God, all the things that stir up anger in us, God, the feeling of losing, the fear of losing. God, I pray that our egos would be diminished, just as John the Baptist said, I must decrease and he must increase. God, make that our prayer. Make that the desire of our hearts. We would decrease and he would increase. And God, I pray that specifically if there's uh, broken relationships in this local church, God, that you would, uh, by your spirit, bring deep, dead serious conviction over everyone involved. God, that there will be repentance, there will be forgiveness, that there will be justice, that there will be reconciliation. And God, I pray that in the future, God, as the world divides, that your church would not. And God, we want to start with us and our own repentance over our anger. And I pray this in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Now may the Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace. Comfort your hearts and establish them in every good work and word. Amen. See you guys next week.